Good morning, everyone. What a joy it is to be gathered together again in the Lord's house, to come as God's people, as brothers and sisters, as a family, and worship our great God and King. Very warm welcome to all of you. If you're a visitor here this morning, I see a few of you. Very warm welcome to you. And it is our prayer that the Lord himself would minister to all of you and encourage your hearts in the Lord that you would find joy and delight in the living God. So a couple of brief announcements. Uh, Next week, we're going to be celebrating the Lord's Supper. So please prepare yourself for that. We'll be doing some communion preparation in the service this morning. And also this evening, we have Brother Andre Bay preaching for, for us from North Shore Baptist Church, a good friend of mine, and many of you know him as well. So I'd encourage you, if you're able to come along this evening, join us to support Andre as he opens up God's word for us. Uh, also on top of that, I have the joy of welcoming Rob to come up. Rob Darby is going to speak to us about uh, the Barnabas Fund. There he is. Oh, microphones. I did tell Alan we didn't need them, but I guess I was wrong. Let's use one. There you go. Good morning. Um, One of the uh, early uh, church uh, hallmarks was uh, reaching out to the the persecuted fellow Christians, brothers and sisters that they heard of. And of course, as you'll read in Acts, they reached out by sending either money or aid or help via uh, preachers and teachers and... uh, people that could support those people that were being persecuted. The Barnabas aid is, uh, is uh, based on that principle of reaching out to brothers and, uh, and sisters around the world. And uh, they, um, they come in behind the, the atrocious axiom that you will now and again read in the online or in the newspapers where Christians are persecuted, often killed. Especially at night during, in Borneo just this last week, I read of uh, nearly 200 Christians being murdered in the evening uh, by those that uh, come in at night, they burn the crops, they burn the houses, they uh, ransack and do all sorts of terrible things and kill a lot of people. Barnabas Aid is uh, a foundation that comes in behind that, helps support building their houses, replanting their crops, sending counsellors and support for those that have lost brothers or sisters, mothers and fathers and helps support such people long-term in order to be able to rebuild their lives. So I'm commending to you this morning the Barnabas Aid, and in particular, uh, a petition that uh, they once signed in order that they can take this to the Commonwealth meeting uh, this year to bring uh, pressure on them to do more in supporting our brothers and sisters. Just a couple of paragraphs I'll read for you, and then um, I will leave this petition for you at the back there so you can sign if you so wish. Um, Barnabas Aid is calling on supporters to sign our petition and to end the anti-Christian violence that is sweeping across the sub-Saharan Africa. Many tens of thousands of our brothers and sisters have been slaughtered in the last two decades as terrorists wage a brutal and genocidal war against African Christian communities. The worst affected here is the area in northern and middle belt, Nigeria and Boko Haram and other militant groups rampage freely. Countless Christian villages have been attacked often at night. And as I said, lots of things are done. And Barnabas Aid will come in and support them long term 
and you can read all about them both online and there's some more material at the back there you can pick up and I would encourage you to support them. They're a great Christian foundation that are doing amazing things to help our brothers and our sisters around the world. Thank you. We have gathered here this morning to worship the Lord our God, and so I'd like to invite you to please stand with me if you're able as we come into God's presence. And as God himself addresses us and calls us to come and worship him with the words of Psalm 97. O you who love the Lord, hate evil. He preserves the lives of his saints. He delivers them from the hand of the wicked. Light is sown for the righteous and joy for the upright in heart. Rejoice in the Lord, O you righteous, and give thanks to his holy name. Amen. Let us pray. Father in heaven, you are the righteous one, and you have called your people to gather before you on your day and to set their hearts towards you. And so here we are. Here we stand before your very throne. And we give thanks to you that you have opened up the way to yourself through the Lord Jesus Christ. That you have, you have opened up the door through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ so that we might be accepted, we might be loved, we might be righteous before your sight. That we might stand before you with boldness. And so as we gather together, we pray that you would wash us clean by his blood again, cleanse our hearts, cleanse our consciences, cleanse our minds, that we might focus upon you today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, our help, brothers and sisters, is in the name of the Lord our God. So come, let us worship him with the words of crown him with many crowns.
standing. We're going to take the opportunity this morning to confess our faith using the Christological statement prepared by Ligonier. And so if you're a believer here today, I would invite you to join with me as we confess our faith with the following words. We confess the mystery and wonder of God made flesh and rejoice in our great salvation through Jesus Christ our Lord. With the Father and the Holy Spirit, the Son created all things, sustains all things, and makes all things new. Truly God, he became truly man, two natures in one person. He was born of the Virgin Mary and lived among us, crucified, dead, and buried. He rose on the third day, ascended to heaven, and will come again in glory and judgment. For us he kept the law, atoned for sin, and satisfied God's wrath. He took our filthy rags and gave us his righteous robe. He is our prophet, priest, and king, building his church, interceding for us, and reigning over all things. Jesus Christ is Lord. We praise his holy name forever. Amen. Please be seated. If you have your Bibles with you, I'd like us to turn through to the book of Matthew. Next week, we have the privilege of coming together together and celebrating the Lord's Supper as God's people. And I'd like us to turn to Matthew 5 as we think about that and begin to prepare our hearts in order to do that. Matthew chapter 5, and I'd like us to read verse 21 through to 26. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, And there, remember, your brother has something against you. Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge, and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison." Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. I want to just draw your attention very quickly to verse 23 and 24. Uh, If you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. When you read the section on the Lord's Supper in, in the church at Corinth, one of the things that very quickly catches your attention is the problems in the church. There's huge divisions. In fact, they're using the Lord's Supper in a way that is destructive to the body rather than drawing them together. We've been given the Lord's Supper as a gift for many reasons, but one of those gifts 
is to celebrate unity, to share together as one family. It, it's a sacrament that, that levels the playing field, for lack of a better term, because we're all equal at the table. No one is above anyone else. And, and this, this section of verses here reminds us that if we are going to come together as one people on Sunday and celebrate the Lord's Supper together as one people, then it's important that there's nothing between us that would divide us, right? And so let me, let me encourage you, let me challenge you over this week to prayerfully consider if there are people that will gather together with you here on Sunday that you would say you're not at peace with. And let me encourage you to pick up the phone, to go and make peace, to go and be reconciled, so that we may indeed draw together on Sunday as one people. And, you know, we're going to be doing something different on Sunday when we celebrate the Lord's Supper. There will be wine and there will be grape juice. And some of you might be upset about that. Some of you might... Be concerned. Some of you might look at someone else who drinks wine or doesn't drink wine or drinks grape juice or doesn't drink grape juice and begin to look down upon them or begin to judge them in your heart. But this is a feast that ought to draw us together in love, draw us together in unity as we gather together before our glorious Savior. And so let's come before God in a time of prayer and ask Him to help us do that. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we we do look forward with anticipation to next week as we come to celebrate, to partake in this means of grace that you've given your church. We thank you for the privilege of being fed by, by the Holy Spirit, eating bread and, and the fruit of the vine, and yet being fed by the Spirit of God. And we pray, Lord, that if any of us harbor bitterness or anger towards our brother or sister, that we would go out of our way to go and be reconciled, to have peace. We do pray, Lord, that you would draw us together as your people, and that, Lord, you would bring us together next week in peace and unity and love, that, Lord, we might be able to celebrate together the, the goodness of the Lord who makes one people, who has reconciled man to God, and brother to brother, sister to sister. And Lord, we pray that you would cleanse our hearts, that you would help us to uh, discern the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ and to judge ourselves and to consider how we stand before you, to consider how we have walked with you. And Lord, we pray that you would bring a great blessing upon that feast that we celebrate next week. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, maybe you're feeling weighed down in your sin and the thought of uh, celebrating the Lord's Supper just feels a little bit overwhelming. Let me, let me encourage you to sing this next song with truth and love because burdens are lifted at Calvary, brothers and sisters. So let's stand and sing.
We're going to open up God's Word together again today and turn through to the book of Psalms, as is our practice, opening through to Psalm 104, as we continue reading our way through God's book of worship, or the anatomy of the human soul, as one author would call it. Turning to Psalm 104. This is God's word for you today. Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a garment, stretching out the heavens like a tent. He lays the beams of his chambers on on the waters. He makes the clouds his chariot. He rides on the wings of the wind. He makes his messengers winds, his ministers a flaming fire. He sets the earth on its foundations so that it should never be moved. You covered it with the, with the deep as with a garment. The waters stood above the mountains. At your rebuke they fled. At the sound of your thunder they took to flight. The mountains rose. The valleys sank down to the place where you appointed for them. You set a boundary that they may not pass, so that they might not again cover the earth. You make springs rush forth in the valleys. They flow between the hills. They give drink to every beast of the field. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. Beside them the birds of the heavens dwell. They sing among the branches. From your lofty abode, you water the mountains. The earth is satisfied with the fruit of your work. You cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine and bread to strengthen man's heart. The trees of the Lord are watered abundantly, the cedars of Lebanon that he planted. In them the birds build their nests. The stork has her home in the fir trees. The high mountains are for the wild goats. The rocks are a refuge for the rock badgers. He made the moon to mark the seasons. The sun knows its time for setting. You make darkness and it is night. When all the beasts of the forest creep about, the young lions roar for their prey, seeking their food from God. When the sun rises, they steal away and lie down in their dens. Man goes out to his work and to his labor until the evening. O Lord, how manifold are your works! In wisdom have you made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. Here is the sea. Great and wide, which teems with creatures innumerable, living things both small and great. There go the ships and Leviathan, which you formed to play in it. These all look to you to give them their food in due season. When you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they are filled with good things. When you hide your face, they are dismayed. When you take away their breath, they die and return to their dust. 
When you send forth your spirit, they are created, and you renew the face of the ground. May the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in his works. Who looks on the earth and it trembles? Who touches the mountains and they smoke? I will sing to the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praise to my God while I have being. May my meditation be pleasing to him, for I rejoice in the Lord. Let sinners be consumed from the earth and let the wicked be no more. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Praise the Lord. Amen. You don't have to look very far in creation to see amazing things, do you? You simply just need to look in a mirror. Look at a fly, a cow, or a cockroach. Take your pick. They're all incredible creatures. Everything perfectly balanced in all of creation. You know, the cockroach is one of the most God-glorifying creatures on the face of the planet. You may hate them, but do a bit of research into them. They're incredible. Their legs, they've got six legs, right? And they work in sets of three as tripods that go like this. This is why you hit them and they just sort of spring onto one set of three. God's designed them that way. So that he would be glorified. So that you would, apart from looking at it and going, ah, you would look at it. And give praise and glory to your maker. And so he draws us to rejoice and worship him. And every blade of grass, every branch, every cat, every dog, every human is a reflection of the glory of God. And the wonderful thing is that great God who created all of that welcomes us to come to him. And the creator of the universe has come to me with all of your burdens So let's do that. Let's pray.
Children that would like to come to the front today. We've still got space down this end if you run out. Well, put your hand up if you like Park Run. Okay, good. We've got some Park Run fans. Very good. I'm sure if I asked the church, I'd get a bunch of hands up too. Uh, you know, I can't really understand. Um, I'm not sure why you would make yourself run for fun. Uh, running is reserved for when someone's trying to kill me. Uh, I'm, not, like, I'm not sure why you would run for fun. It's like when something bad's happening, right? It's like you run to help someone or you run away from danger, but then someone's like, let's go for a run. And I'm like, why? Because park runs, fun. And I'm like, wait, running, fun. Park runs not fun, right? It is fun. Okay, so how, how might you convince me that going to park run is fun? Any ideas? So I told you, it's not fun. You can't even convince me that parkrun's fun. Okay, let's pretend I've never heard of parkrun before, and you're a huge parkrun fan, and you really want me to come to parkrun with you. What might you do? Invite me? It's a good idea, but I don't know what parkrun is, so I don't really want to come. Teach them? Yep. So tell me about it. Yeah, good idea. You could bring them the day before. But the thing is, I'm not, I'm not super like, interested in coming to parks because I really love sitting on my couch and doing nothing all day. That's a great job. And so I don't really like going to parks either. So what if maybe you showed me a photo of Parkrun? Do you think that might help? Be like, look at all these people running. And I'm like, ooh. And then, you're, oh, maybe this might help. And then you showed me a photo of everyone at the finish line. Of course, and what do they look like at the finish line? <sighs> oh, oh, man, I'm so tired. I'm like, yeah, this does not look fun at all. But then you showed me a video, and I was like, oh, it's a little bit more convincing because they actually do look like they're having fun, especially ones that are walking and not running. They look like they're having the most fun. Um, and then, but then you take the video and you show me right the end at the video with all these people and they're standing around and they're talking to one another and they're having good fellowship and you see friends chatting and stuff like that. I'm like, oh, this actually looks pretty cool. Maybe I could go and do that. I need you to maybe take me along. Actually, maybe you just need to show me what it's like. And so you take me by the hand, um, or maybe if that feels weird, you don't take me by the hand, you just pick me up in your car, you know, and you take me in your car down to the park run, and you take me through the course, like you were saying, and you show me the different run, where you go, and, and you explain that, you know, you don't have to run fast, you can just wander, you know, you can just go nice and slow, because, you know, I'm an old man, so I have to walk really slow, and I've got bad gammy knees, so I can't really run, uh, yeah, I've got my walking cane with me. Good idea. I can use that, and that'll help. I can use two crutches, those mountaineer sticks, you know, something like that. And you help me along the way. Well, that would really help me to understand much more than if I knew nothing and you just went, park run's real great. You should come. You teach me and you show me the coolness of park run. Well, we're thinking today about showing people not the coolness of park run, but the wonderful nature of Jesus Christ. How do we do that? How do we live in this world as New Zealanders or wherever you come from? 
how do we live in this world in a way that show, gets people to see how wonderful Jesus is and the glorious salvation that he offers us? It, it, it's not actually very complicated. Sometimes we like to think that telling people about Jesus is really hard, but actually living a life that points people to Jesus is pretty simple, and Paul's going to help us think about that. But we definitely need God's help, because though it's simple, it's not always easy. So let's pray and ask God to help us with that. Father in heaven, we thank you that, that you have shown us how we ought to live, and we pray that you would help us to show others how we ought to live. That, Lord, by, by our lives, they might come to know Jesus Christ. We pray that these children, in, in their own little way, at school and with friends, might be able to point people to Jesus Christ. And Lord, we pray for your help to do so. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, we're going to stand and sing, Jesus Bids Us Shine, and then you can find your worksheets after that. Let's stand and sing together.
dedicate the offering to the Lord. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the way that you provide for your children. That, Lord, you don't leave us and you never forsake us. And so we pray that as we bring a small portion to you today, that you would receive it from our hearts and that we would give them cheerfully. Lord, you are the provider. Though we labor and we work, we recognize that without you, we will achieve nothing. Uh, without you, there, there can be no good. And so we ask, Lord, take this money, use it to care for sojourners, use it to care for aliens. Lord, use it to care for orphans and widows. And most of all, use it to take the gospel of Christ to the ends of the earth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. We are turning through to the little letter of Titus this morning as we continue working our way through the book. And as I pointed out last Sunday night, we are just beginning a new section, heading into chapter 3. And so I, I said last week that uh, chapter 1, you get those first intro verses, which is the first section, then the remainder of chapter 1, which is all about uh, elders and the ordering of the church and why that needs to happen. Then we get into chapter 2, which is all about godliness uh, specifically shown. So what does godliness look like in individual different types of people, older, younger, male, female, slaves, ministers, etc.? Then we got the theological foundation of that towards the end of the chapter. Now we shift into a new section in chapter 3. Now we move from godliness in particular groups to sort of godliness in general, that which is exhorted upon everybody for all believers, how we ought to live in this world. And so we're going to be looking at chapter 3, verse 1 and 2, but we'll read from chapter 2, verse 15, and then through to the end of chapter 3, verse 11. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people, but avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, 
dissensions and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. Amen, and may God bless the reading of his word to us. And before we come to consider it today, let's come before God in a time of prayer. Let's pray. Father in heaven, as we come before you today, and as we come and sit under the preaching of your word, we do pray that, Lord, we wouldn't hear so much words of eloquence, nor clever turns of phrases, but, Lord, we would hear words of power. For your servant, the Lord Jesus, your son, speaks when the word of God is preached. And so we pray, Father, would you declare to us your will through your son and by your Holy Spirit in the word of God. Lord, give us ears to hear. Give us hearts to believe what you have to say. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, I just started reading a new book recently, one that uh, Brother Christot gave me, which is The Works of Henry Skugel. If you haven't heard of Henry Skugel, that doesn't matter. But in that, he has this, he has this sermon that he preaches, and it's all about the excellency of religious people. And, and he talks about the way that in comparison to worldliness and godlessness, the, the religious man, by that he means the Christian, the religious man shines forth in the world. And as he gets towards the end of his message, he says the following words. Religion has so much native luster and beauty that notwithstanding all, all the dirt they attempt to cast upon it, all the melancholy and deformed shapes that they dress it in, it will attract the eyes and admiration of all sober and ingenuous persons. And while these men work hard to make it ridiculous, they shall but make themselves so. If that went right over your head, his point is, no matter how hard the world might try to make the true Christian religion look ridiculous, the gospel will always shine forth in brilliance. And it shines forth in the way we live. It shines forth in the way we live. And we, we know, don't we? We know that we're called to live as, as witnesses. We're called to live as lights. We're called to shine in the darkness. 
We know, as Jesus said, that we're called to make our good works shine before men so that they would glorify our Father in heaven. We know that we need to labor to live like Christ in our workplaces and in our homes and in the supermarket and everywhere we go. But we're forgetful, aren't we? That's why Paul says to Titus, remind them, remind them. One, one commentator said, ministers should be called the Lord's reminders. That's pretty good, isn't it? The Lord's reminders. Why? Because what we do is just remind you of the stuff you already know over and over and over and over again. And so if you ever find yourself sitting here on a Sunday thinking to yourself, I've heard this before, Logan. Good. And you will hear it again, and probably many more times in your life. And that's why the Apostle Paul would say, and Peter would say, and James would say, I write to remind you. And Jude would say, I write to remind you. Because we are all slow, hard of heart, and forgetful. And so we need to be reminded. And so this, this passage comes as an exhortation to Titus of what to remind the people of. And so my plan, Lord willing, is to remind you of what you ought to do, how you ought to live in this world. How do we live as citizens of New Zealand or as residents of New Zealand or whatever your current status is? How do we live in New Zealand in a way that glorifies God, in a way that attracts people, that shines forth the gospel of Christ? Our primary witness, brothers and sisters, is through the way we live. We must speak, but our primary testimony that we bear is first and foremost in the way we live. And we follow that up with words. Now, to understand what's going on in this passage, you need to very quickly look at verse 1, 2, and 3 and understand the logic sorry, three and four, to understand the logic of what Paul's doing. Um, hopefully you remember, back in chapter two, we got all those commands first, and then we got the theological foundation after it, didn't we? And Paul's doing the same thing in this section here. He, it's unlike Paul in most of his letters, but he does it again. He brings a command, then he gives the theological foundation for it. And so Paul is going to tell us in verse 1 and 2, this is how you ought to live in the world. This is how you ought to bear witness. Then in verse 3, he's going to tell us the sort of witness we used to bear. So we used to bear a witness of disobedience, foolishness, being led astray, slaves, etc. We, we were a testimony of Godlessness. But, verse 4, you have been saved. The goodness and loving kindness of Christ appeared, so you've been saved. So now what you need to do is to live as godly testimonies, as testimonies of the grace of God at work in your life. In other words, the reason you go to work and live in a godly way the reason you do everything we're going to see in verse 1 and 2 is not because it's important to be godly in your workplace, but because Jesus Christ has redeemed you from godlessness. He has saved you from sin. 
and set you free to live for Him. And so you become a testimony because of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. So what are the three things we need to be reminded of? There's actually seven things, but we can boil them down to three. What are the three things we need to be reminded to do? Well, firstly, the first thing, number one thing, is we need to be reminded that we must bend our knees. We must, as Christians, as people who have been saved by grace, bend our knees. The Apostle Paul says to Titus, remind them, in verse 1, to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, and to be ready for every good work. Why, why does Titus need to remind them? There's a couple of reasons. One, Crete was notoriously known for being a seditious and rebellious people. Um, they, they had only been conquered about 100 years before this letter was written, so they, they still really chafed under Roman rule. Plus, they were filled with a whole bunch of re really angry Jewish people that wanted to throw off the shackles of Rome. And so you could imagine the young converts coming in from these types of people and now discovering the freedom of the gospel, the freedom of Christ, discovering Christ as king and coming to wrong conclusions. Oh, so... So the emperor is not king, but Jesus is king. Oh, that means I don't need to listen to the king anymore. I can just listen to Jesus. The gospel enables me to throw off all the obedience to governments. So that's one reason. But I think the primary reason is that deep down in the heart of every single fallen human being is the desire to throw off authority. Whether it's a parent to a child sorry, a child to a parent, whether it's a wife to a husband or whether it's a citizen to a government, it's all the same. And it goes all the way back to Adam and Eve, doesn't it? Do you remember what Jesus said to Eve? God knows that if you eat it, you'll become like him. You'll become a God. So you can imagine the logic of Eve, right? Oh, well, if I get to become a god, then I'm God, which means I'm the authority. It's deep down in the heart of all of us, isn't it? We all want to be in charge. No one likes being told what to do. And so we need to be reminded that there, there are authority structures appointed by God that we must submit to, that we must obey. Romans 13 tells us that every government is appointed by God. He, they are set there by God. They rule under the authority of God, which means if you don't obey them, you're not just rejecting an authority, you're rejecting God himself who has put them there. In the same way that when a child rejects the authority of their parents, they're rejecting God. And when the wife rejects the authority of her husband, she's rejecting God because God is the one who has established these things. And so for the same reason that the Apostle Paul tells the older women to train the younger women to submit to their husbands, he tells Titus to remind the people to submit to their governments, to be submissive, to have a heart attitude of submissiveness and obedience. Well, what does that mean? Well, yes, it means you're not allowed to speak. 
I know how annoying it is driving 30 kilometres an hour down Christmas Road. My car almost doesn't drive 30 kilometres an hour down that road. I know how much more convenient it is to, to watch things that you haven't paid for. Brothers and sisters, we have no freedom to say that law doesn't apply to me, even if it doesn't make sense. I, I mean, we're well aware, right? Everyone's well aware that our governments nowadays are experts of making untold numbers of ridiculous rules. But whether we think they're ridiculous or not does not set us free to say, I will not keep them. Your opinion on the law counts for nothing because God has put them there. They will give an account to God for the way they have structured laws. And they will. Every authority... Every government, every king, every prime minister will one day stand before the judgment seat of God and give an account for every decision they've made and everything that they've done. You will not bear responsibility for the decisions they've made, but you will bear responsibility for whether you've obeyed them or not. Now, I know for a fact that there's a whole bunch of you right now in this moment who are, who are saying, yeah, but... But what about? What about this condition? What about limits? And I totally get it. And we're going to go there in a second. But don't rush to there. One of our temptations is to immediately find the limits and the conditions. You know, it's almost like we jump over the fact that we have to actually obey them just so we can talk about the fact that there's all these cases where I don't have to obey them. Be an expert at keeping the law. Be an expert at submissiveness and obedience to the government. And then we can talk about the exceptions. Now, this has a, this has a real life testimony-bearing effect. Because, you know, all of us think, right, yeah, but everyone drives 115 down the motorway. Yeah, but no one follows the 30-kilometer speed limit. Yeah, but everyone exaggerates on their insurance form. Yeah, but everyone... And we say, yeah, everyone, except for Christians. Because Christians obey the government. Because Christians delight to submit to those that God has put above them. And so all of a sudden, as Christians, you stand out in the world. You're like a big old sore thumb or toe. It's toe, isn't it? Yeah, sore toe. Sticking out for everyone to see. And everyone's like, why are, you, why, do you, why are you so weird? Just be like everyone else. You say, no, because I believe in Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ is the King of Kings. And so, out of love for him and submission to him, I submit to those that he's put above us. Yeah, but they're Muppets. What's that got to do with it? So is my husband, but I submit to him. So are my parents, but I listen to them. Okay, don't say that, but you get my point, right? Well, what about exceptions, you say? Surely we don't just, you know, obey in absolutely every situation no matter what. No, you're right, we don't. We, we, know, we know that Acts 5 exists. Remember Acts 5? You tell me if we must obey God or man. 
You tell me who we should obey. And the obvious answer is, we must obey God. Is everything all right? Just take a moment, pause, before I continue. Because it's distracting for all of us, let's be honest. Okay, we're okay. Sweet. Good. Better to have the crying of a child than the chirping of a cricket, as Peter Reynolds used to say. So, what about exceptions? Well, the the exceptions are covered really beautifully in this passage. You'll notice that Paul says, be submissive to rulers and authorities, be obedient, be ready for every good work. Now, that be ready for every good work is tied to the section that goes before it. It's tied to the section that goes before it. In other words, the way that you submit and obey is by devoting yourself to good works, to good things. In other words, you don't devote yourself to evil. So if the government tells you to do something which is wicked, like abortion, then you don't do it. Why? Because you devote yourself to good works. You are very quick. You are always ready to stop and do anything that would be considered good in our communities, in our places, in our neighborhoods, in our workplace. The people that should stand out when when times of crisis come, are the Christians. Because they're ready for every good work. So when the government now calls you to do something wicked, you say no. This is the, this is the defining thing. You see, we remember from Romans 13 that the government has been given to what? Uphold good and punish evil. Now, if they begin to do the opposite, we don't join them in that. If they begin to tell us to sin, we don't join them in that. We continue to pursue good. And good is defined by the Lord, isn't it? It's it's like wives to husbands. They submit to their husbands as to the Lord. They submit to their husbands in such a way that it is at the same time submission to Christ. So if their husbands tell them to do something that's not godly, they don't do it. The same is true for us. So we we must learn to to bend the knee. And the way we're going to do that, the the thing that's going to motivate us and remind us in that is is primarily remembering who our governments are. They are God-given. And so when we look to our governments, we remember that we are bowing the knee. We are bending the knee to Jesus Christ himself. who is head over every authority, who is king of kings. And so we may give ourselves to him, give ourselves to Jesus Christ, to his praise in our bending of the knee. So firstly, we must be reminded to bend the knee so that we shine as a light into our community, into our workplaces, to our government, everywhere. But secondly, we must... Learn to break our swords. We must learn to break our swords. We must be reminded in our, in our relationships with one another, in our relationships with work colleagues, family, the government, authorities, everybody, we must be reminded to break our swords. Have a look at verse 2. Speak evil of no one, or quite literally, blaspheme no one. <laughs> 
and avoid quarrelling or, or don't be warlike. The, the word for quarrelling is quite an interesting one. It's, it's the word when it's not negative, in the sense it's negative, don't do this. When it's used positively, it was always used for war. Go make war with someone. Go to battle. Paul says, don't do that. This is what I mean by break the sword. We're not to be a warlike people. Why do we need to be reminded of that? Well, because of the fall, we naturally just pretty much hate everyone, right? I mean, I I read an article this week about Australia, which equally applies to New Zealand. It It was an American learning for the first time about a thing called tall poppy syndrome. Most of us know what tall poppy syndrome is. When you know, anyone who sticks their head up gets pulled back down. You can also call it the, the crab in the bucket mentality. If you stick a whole bunch of crabs in a bucket, when they try and climb out, they actually pull each other back down again. Um, and, and this American was just amazed. He'd never heard of this before. It was so counter anything in his culture. He was like, this is insane. Why would you do that? He's talking about things like the way that in Australia, um, if, you, if someone else is getting ahead in the workplace, you begin to slander them. Because if they get ahead, then you're not going to get ahead. So you start tearing them down. And he was like, this is just nuts. Why would you do that? And, and yet it's exactly what takes place in New Zealand, isn't it? I mean, tell me you haven't seen this before in work. There's a position up for grabs, a promotion up for grabs. And all of a sudden, everyone starts devouring one another. All of a sudden, the boss starts hearing why everyone else is really useless. Now, I know this because I've been a boss who promotes people. I remember the day I needed a new 2IC. And all of a sudden, all of a sudden, all of my work colleagues needed to inform me, all of my workers needed to inform me of why no one else was good for the position. None of them said I was good for the position. They just said, hey, by the way, all those guys don't need the position. They turned on one another and devoured one another. Brothers and sisters, there is a real temptation in our hearts to be like this to devour one another with our words, to use our tongues to slander, to speak against, and to destroy other people. I mean, just consider the way social media is used. Now, if, you, if you don't know anything about social media, there are these social media groups where you can join to discuss Reformed theology, which sounds wonderful, until you get in the group and what you actually discover is there's a bunch of children abusing one another over their theological differences, like savagely attacking each other with godlessness. And you think to yourself, what's the matter with us? And it's everywhere. We must not allow, as James would say, our tongues to become Something that we use to speak blessing to God and cursing to our neighbor, like a fire that sets a forest ablaze. So easy. Don't you feel it? You know, someone comes to you, maybe at church, maybe at work, and someone says to you, oh, that person over there, they're really wonderful. And you go, oh, yeah, they're not that wonderful. I remember the other day when I saw, and and then you hop in the car and you go, what's the matter? Why don't I do it again? It's so easy. To let our mouths become swords. But not just our mouths, but also our actions. So avoid quarreling, avoid being warlike. We can devote our time and our energy and our, and our bodies even to brawling. 
The King James Version translates it as don't brawl. Don't be a brawler. Apparently in Titus, they had issues with people fighting. Bit crazy. It's not to be the spirit of, of Christendom. It's not to be the spirit of the church. When, when other people in your workplace or in your family or in your friendship groups speak against one another, shut your mouth and just say nothing. When, when people gossip or slander, say, I'm not interested. And you will stick out, you will shine into whatever place you find yourself because you will be drastically different than everybody else around you. It's not rocket science, but we need to be reminded, right? So we need to learn and we need to be reminded to bend the knee and to break our swords. But we also need to be reminded to break our hearts. To break our hearts. And so the Apostle Paul says, be gentle. Show perfect courtesy toward all people. Be gentle. Show perfect courtesy. You know, by, uh, by nature, we can be very harsh people, can't we? People can be really harsh. People can be cutting. And it's not just... It's not just the world, it's us too. We, we can say things and we can act in ways that are just absolutely brutal. I, I remember hearing the story of, of a pastor standing at the door of his church. And after church, uh, a man came up to the door and said to him, our music sucks, and then just walked out the door. I said, what? I mean, I have no idea what their music was like. It might have been true, but it makes no difference. It's just harsh, right? And another guy heard of a worship leader, a worship leader who, after he had led worship that Sunday, someone came up to him and said to him, I am never coming to church when you're leading music again. And I said, why? He says, because when you sing, you contort your face in the weirdest ways. And you look constipated. And he just turned around and walked out. What's the matter with us? And, and maybe we don't go that extreme, but isn't it so easy for us to just make a scathing comment to someone? To tear people down? Rather than seeking to build people up, as, as one commentator said, seeking to speak good to all or keeping our mouths shut? You know, if it's not good, if it's not godly, if it's not beneficial, just keep it to yourself. We need to break our hearts so that actually we're not just going through the motions of doing stuff, but we actually we act with a heart packed full of gentleness. The, the words like gentle uh, mercy. The, the word it connotes the idea of someone that is, is soft with others. But not just gentleness and, and softness, but humility. That word courtesy can be translated a number of ways. It's very hard to find an adequate word. It's like a humble, gentle person, a person that doesn't think more about themselves than they should, but thinks about the benefit of others, lifting up those around them. 
Is that, is that your heart? Because that's not the world's heart, right? The world celebrates some levels of pride. The world celebrates the powerful and egotistical. But the church celebrates what Jesus says. If you want to be great, be the least. And by that, he doesn't mean become the least so that then you can stop being the least and become great. It means, no, no, greatness is being and staying least like Jesus Christ. How can you do that, though? It's so hard, isn't it, to be gentle, to be humble? The secret to doing that is, is recognizing and remembering verse 3. That we were once all this. That I was once a fool. I was once disobedient. I was once, once godless. And so when I now am confronted by um, an, an unbeliever who is just absolutely ignorant and harsh and irritating and frustrating and you feel completely justified and just wiping them away and having nothing to do with them. You look at them and you remind yourself, I was once that person. The only reason that's not me is because of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. So who am I to look down upon them? Who am I to be harsh with them? When you see a fellow Christian that's just bumbling along and makes the same mistakes over and over again, they do things that you think are absolutely nuts. You look at them and you think to yourself, the only reason I am where I am is because of God's grace in the Lord Jesus Christ. I've got to extend to them more grace than God's extended to me. And I've received quite a lot becomes easy when we remember who we once were. You know, Augustine uh, could boast when, when the emperor Julian had a go at him, he could boast that Christians, when they were asked to sacrifice and offer incense to gods, at all hazards they sternly refused. But when he summoned them to fight for the empire, they rushed to the front. The, the early church fathers could boast that when people fled from plagues, Christians remained, picked up the dead bodies and buried them, and cared for the dying. Early church fathers could boast that whereas Rome loved to celebrate the proud, the strong, and the fearless, Christians could boast of being fearful before God and filled with meekness, gentleness, and humility. And that's, that's the testimony that changed Rome. I mean, it brought a whole lot of persecution with it too. But that's the testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ at work in his people that changed Rome. And it's the testimony that could change Manurewa and your family and your workplace. So the only real question is, is whether as Christians we will devote ourselves to living this way or whether we will privatize our faith in such a way that no one will see our light shine. God has saved us in the Lord Jesus Christ from what we once were that we might be testimonies of His grace. And may he grant us to shine forth a light so brightly 
that everyone in the dark might be drawn here like a moth to a flame. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you that you have set us free from darkness, that we might live and walk in the light and attract many people to yourself. And we pray that you would help us to live in keeping with your word and in keeping with Christ who has gone before us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, let's stand and sing, brothers and sisters, in response to God's word with the words of who is on the Lord's side. Let's stand and sing.
remain standing. Okay, okay we'll prep right now. Just so everyone knows, Josie uh, injured her ankle. So we'll pray for her now, and then we'll have the blessing. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that you are the God who comforts and heals, and that you are with your children. And so we pray for Josie right now. Lord, we, we ask that you would comfort her in her affliction and trial. We pray that, Lord, you would give the doctors wisdom as they seek to help her heal and repair and yet we recognize, Lord, that there is no healing outside of your hand. That, Lord, without you, there is no hope, but in you there is all hope. And so, Lord, be with her now. Comfort the heart of her family and help the children not to be upset or distressed. And we just pray, Lord, that you'd help James as he supports her as well. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Our brothers and sisters, look to the Lord Jesus Christ by faith and receive his blessing. Brothers and sisters, may you receive the God of all grace who, was call, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ. He will restore you. He will confirm you. He will strengthen you. He will establish you. And to him be the dominion and glory forever and ever. Amen. Now unto him.
Jesus, we turn our eyes.